1: Welcome to Sound Reasoning. I'm your host, Persis Poku. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5, in the NIV version, lays out the scriptures this way. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And that's our prescription. It's our mandate as Christians that wherever we go, not only are we equipping ourselves to be able to give a reason for the hope that lies within us, but we have to be prepared to demolish arguments at times and as we look around our society, there are a lot of anti-God sentiments and anti-God theologies and anti-God philosophies. And so we as believers, we have to equip ourselves to meet these challenges head on with the power of the Holy Spirit. And on today, I wanted to invite, um, he's he, hes not a stranger to us. Uh, he's been on a show Uh, in previous times, I wanted to invite our dear friend, um, Dr. Kenneth Samples, to the show and to share with us about a book that he wrote without a doubt, answering the 20 toughest faith questions. And as I was perusing through the book, I was enlightened and encouraged. Uh, A lot of things uh, was a reinforcement and some things uh, I had forgotten over the years, but we wanted to invite Brother Samples to the show. Brother Samples, how are you today?
2: I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. It's it's, it's a real pleasure to talk with you again.
1: Amen, amen, amen. And you wrote this book uh, in the early 2000s? I did. It came out in 2004. Great, great, great. I, I must have missed it, but once I got my fingers on it, I couldn't stop reading it. So thank you for the hard work that you did.
2: Well, thank you. I'm I'm so glad that you're getting some good use out of it. I appreciate
1: that. So, and this is one of the questions that I, even without looking at the prep information that I received, the question I had was, where did he get these questions from? <laughs> so can you tell yeah. us where these questions came from?
2: Yeah, that's, uh, I'm glad you asked me that. I um, had worked in apologetics for a, a long time, even, even at that point. And these were questions that I got when I uh, used to host the Bible Answer Man program. These were also questions that students would ask me when I would teach college and university courses. So I kind of kept a a mental note of these important questions, and I was very pleased to be able to to address them in a full-length book.
1: Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate it again. So for those of you listening, we have Brother Ken Samples on air with us, and we're talking about his book, Without a Doubt, Answering the 20 Toughest Faith Questions. And this book is broken up in three parts. First part, thinking through questions about faith in God. The second part, thinking through questions about faith in Jesus Christ. And the third part, thinking through objections about the Christian faith. And so we'll dive into it a little bit, uh, but had a couple of preliminary questions. So one of the things you talk about, is uh, under the thinking through questions about faith in God, how can I believe in a God that I can't see?
2: Yeah, I um, I have had people ask me that. You know, they um, even today I will hear people say that, you know, Christians believe in an invisible God. They believe in, you know, a, a person up in the sky that you can't see. And I thought it was very important to address that question, and what I do in the chapter is, of course, I point out that there are many things that are very important that we can't see. Uh, for example, we can't see the laws of logic. Uh, we, we, can't see, uh, we, can't, we can't see virtues like love and things of that nature. So I, I try to point out that, uh, and there are a lot of scientific things. You can't see an electron. So I point out that we believe in a lot of things that we cannot directly observe, and there's evidence for God, even though we can't see him, though people saw Jesus Christ and they inferred that he was God.
1: That's true. Uh, I I, I appreciate that response. Uh, Now, as a follow-up, in terms of what you just unpacked for us, is there a relationship in terms of, Um, those things that we can't see and our limitations as human beings?
2: Yeah, that's a a very, very important point. Um, Obviously, you know, human beings are limited. We're finite creatures. We have limitations and boundaries. There are things we can't observe. There are things that we don't directly know. And so in in many ways, um, Christianity asks us, as finite limited creatures to open ourselves to a god that is infinite and eternal you know we're we are temporal creatures he's an eternal being uh he's infinite we're finite and obviously there are many things that uh, we uh, either don't observe or don't know and some things god has to reveal to us
1: And. Basically, you're sharing with us that there there's information, truth information, that at times exists outside of our senses.
2: That's exactly right. There are many things uh, that are outside of our empirical observation. I would say, for example, uh, laws of mathematics, laws of logic. And I think to be open to our limitations, we, we have to have a humility and To be a Christian, you have to open yourself to the idea that there may be many things that you don't know or can't observe.
1: Under the first section, again, you talk about the creeds and its position or its relevance in Christianity. Can you tell us, for those that are listening, what are the creeds and why are they important to our faith?
2: Yeah, that's, that's really an important uh, question. Well, the, the word creed comes from the Latin credo, and it means I believe. So creedal statements or creeds are typically short statements of belief. They, they get down the essentials, the necessary uh, beliefs. I would say that creeds are important for, for many reasons. First of all, I would say there are creeds in the Bible, uh, Deuteronomy 6-4, called the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was a Jewish creed. right? And, e- and even in the New Testament, there are creedal statements. Uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the first part of that chapter, appears to be a creedal statement that was used in the early Church. So creeds are very important. They, they have a biblical basis, but if you look at the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, these are creeds that all Orthodox denominations and branches of Christendom affirm, and they, they communicate to us really critical Christian doctrine. So I argue that creeds are very important. We should pay close attention to them, and we should give them respect, not because they're, they're biblical in themselves, but because
1: they convey biblical truth. Thank you for that. My next question is what you have in the book. Again, the first section uh, deals with the doctrine of the Trinity. And I guess the question is, how can God be three and one? And so you you did an excellent job of explaining uh, persons uh, in contrast to nature. So can you share with our readers, uh, there may be some, Uh, They use the term Trinity, but may not have a full understanding of the doctrinal teaching behind it.
2: Yeah, you know, the word Trinity, um, it means triunity, three in one. So Tertullian, uh, second, third century, used the, the Latin word Trinitas. So the word Trinity goes back a very long way. Some people are a little put off because the word Trinity is not in the Bible, But the word Bible is not in the Bible, so it's okay to use words that are not explicitly in the Bible. The doctrine of the Trinity teaches that God is one being, one essence, but three persons. And so when we talk about the Trinity, we're saying that in terms of what God is, God is one. He has one nature, one essence. He's one divine being. But in terms of who God is, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So these three distinct, but not separate, persons—they all share that one divine nature. So God is uh, God is different from human beings. We're personal agents. God is super personal. He's one in essence, but three in person. And by the way, I think what's so critically important about that is that means that God is love in Himself. Right. Uh, God is like, analogous to a family, whereas in Islam and traditional Judaism and Jehovah's Witnesses, all of the gods of those religions is a single, solitary God. So who did that single, solitary God love before he created angels and men? It creates a problem uh, that the Trinity resolves. God can be love in himself because he's a community of persons.
1: Thank you for explaining that. Um along with that um, expression or explanation, uh, I've heard or read uh, the doctrine of, I guess, procession where it says uh, the Holy Spirit processed out of the relationship between the Godhead. Can you explain that?
2: Yeah, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, of course, teaches these very profound truths that uh you know, the, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from both the Father and the Son. That's a distinctly Western or, or uh, Catholic Protestant perspective. The Orthodox view it a little differently. But essentially what we mean by that is that there's no subordination. There, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equal, But there is a unique relationship. Uh, The Father eternally begets the Son. Begetting doesn't mean create, and proceeding doesn't mean create. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have eternal relations within the Trinity, but that doesn't minimize, it doesn't mean that the Father and or the Son created the Holy Spirit. So uh, these are things that are beyond our pay grade, meaning... These are things that are difficult for us to fully comprehend, but these do appear to be uh, the teachings of Scripture and of the early Christian church.
1: Thank you for that explanation. And for those of you listening, we have Brother Ken Samples on air with us, uh, going through the highlights from his book, Without a Doubt, Answering the 20 Toughest Faith Questions. And I would encourage you all that can to get it in your library for research and study material. Uh, And as we're going through this, uh, some of you may be asking yourselves, uh, why are we dealing with these doctrines and why are we spending so much time talking about the Trinity and the nature and the persons? And uh, from a biblical perspective, we have to do this because God is truth and God does not want us to have the wrong perception about who he is and what he's asking us to do. So, in order to make sure that we don't violate any biblical principles, we need to first know what the truth is. So, we appreciate Brother Samples helping us to uh, clarify some of these doctrines. So, my next question um, oftentimes, people attack not just the Bible, but they attack Christ personally in terms of uh, his historicity. So, Explain to us in the book when you talk about, is Jesus a man, myth, madman, menace, mystic, a Martian, or the Messiah? And these are questions that people are asking of us as Christians. So, uh, Brother Samples, can you help us with that?
2: Yeah, what I I do in that chapter, and uh, it took me a long time to come up with all of those M words there, Um, what I do is I say, look, uh, as we read through the Gospels, Jesus makes extraordinary claims. I mean, he claims to be the great I Am. He says, uh, you know, that he and the Father are one. He makes claims that he can forgive sin, raise the dead. These are things that only God can do. So I then raised the question, in light of reading the Gospels and looking explicitly at the claims of Christ, What are our possible options as to his identity? And so I developed uh, basically the idea that is he merely a man? Was he purely mythical or legendary? Uh, Could he have been crazy, a madman? Uh, Was he evil, a menace? Was he kind of an Eastern mystical guru? Could he have stepped off of a UFO as an extraterrestrial? Or was he, in fact, the divine Messiah that Christians think he was? And I think that's a very powerful way of reasoning. In logic, we call it an abductive approach. That is, we're looking for the the best explanation. And I think of all of those options, the best explanation of Jesus is that he was, in fact, the divine Messiah, the Son of God.
1: Right. And the evidence points towards that reality, so you're absolutely right in that sense. Um, my next question is, and it's dealing with again the um, the nature of, of Christ. Um, you talked about the relationship between the divine uh, side as well as the human side, and you use the term hypostatic union. Uh, can you explain that to our listeners? What hypostatic union represents and why? It speaks volume of the God man Jesus Christ that we all worship?
2: Yeah, it's again right at the heart of Christianity are these great doctrines. We talked about the Trinity, now we're talking about the incarnation. That is, the second person of the Trinity took a human nature and became the God man. So the hypostatic union raises the question what was the relationship between Jesus's two natures? That is, he was a single person with both a divine and human nature. But what, it, what was the union of the divine and human nature? And in that chapter, I talk about the various passages in Scripture that indicate Jesus was God, as well as passages that indicate that he was a human being. And I then propose how we can think about Jesus being both God and man, because historic Christianity says that because Jesus is God and man, he can represent God and man, and he can reconcile God and man. And so I look at the various biblical passages, and I examine challenges, uh, like Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus was the God-man. So I respond to those various types of challenges that have come in Church history and remain today.
1: Excellent. Um... Back to the second part of your book, thinking through questions about about faith in Jesus Christ. The question is, did Jesus actually uh, rise from the dead?
2: Yeah, I, I can't think of a more important question than that. I mean, um, the reason that I'm a Christian is because I believe Christianity is true. And I believe that Christianity is true fundamentally because I believe the evidence points to Jesus having conquered death, uh, that is, there is evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Three days after his public crucifixion, under the authority of Pontius Pilate, uh, the tomb was empty. The body was missing. But not only was the tomb empty, uh, numerous people saw Jesus. Um, and so there is a, a number of evidences that point to Jesus actually being raised from the dead. The tomb is empty. Various people observed him uh, risen, alive after having been dead. Uh, The disciples who experienced him, their lives were transformed through this. And the birth of the Church uh, comes directly from the resurrection of Jesus. So I argue in the chapter that there is good historical evidence who affirmed that a miracle took place and that Jesus Christ came back from the dead. And and if that is, in fact, true, I can't think of anything more important than all people in the world hear that message, because all you have to do is drive by a cemetery and you realize we all die. (laughs) But if Christ has conquered death, then everybody needs to know about it. And that's why I'm a Christian. That's why I'm involved in apologetics. That's why I support evangelism. Missions
1: and teaching. Amen, amen. And I strongly support that sentiment. If I think Paul even highlights the fact that Christ did not rise, and our preaching is in vain. So that's right. that that's the core of our faith and the core of our uh, of our mission. Now, it's as we get ready to um, close, uh, my last question is really important to me especially as it relates to our young people uh the question was um aren't christianity and science enemies and i love the way that you really unpack it in your book uh especially when you highlight uh those scientists in the past that were believers like galileo and kepler so can you touch on that for us please
2: Yeah, it's very important today, and I I agree with you, particularly for young people, to recognize that Christianity and science historically have been allies, not enemies. Right. And the reason for that is that science exploded in the middle of the 1600s. That is, the worldview that produced science was uniquely Christian, and therefore, so many of the early scientists, they held a Christian view. They believed that studying nature pointed to God. So they believed in what we call the two books, the book of nature and the book of Scripture. And I would argue that uh, evidence even today about the universe, the origin of the universe, its, its design, uh, its fine-tuning, these kinds of things point to, to a mind behind the universe, a creator behind the universe. And so Christianity and science have always been friends doesn't mean there haven't been challenges. there have been. But for the most part, Christianity and science have had a unique both historical and philosophical relationship.
1: Brother Samples, thank you so much for being on sound reasoning again. We appreciate you always making yourself available to share with our listeners. And and please uh, continue doing what you're doing for the kingdom.
2: Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you for those thoughtful questions.
1: Amen. Have a blessed day. Again, that's Brother Ken Samples uh, sharing with us from his book, Without a Doubt, answering the 20 toughest faith questions in regards to our Christian faith. And as we go along our journey, we ought to always be ready. To give each man and woman an answer, a reason for the hope that lies within you, and to do it with gentleness and respect, because we never know who the Lord will put in our way, that we may share the gospel with them, that they may have a relationship with the true creator. Remember to do for the truth what so many do for the lie.
0: That's srministries.org. Listen again next week at this same time. And remember, Titus 1-9 says, Hold firm to the trustworthy messages has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound Reasoning Ministries, srministries.org.